The power of reflection. Is this the missing link in helping learners to be knowledgeable and skillful doers? Now, it's disappointing all round when workplace learning goes in one ear and out the other. And what a waste of that training budget when people just don't seem to get how what they've been taught applies to them and their role. No wonder productivity stays the same. It seems pretty obvious that learning has to sink in and ferment before people will properly question and direct what they do in future. As educators first pointed out a century ago, we don't learn from experience, we learn from reflecting on it. So isn't it time to start building this essential reflective practice into our learning? Joining us to point the way, Fiona McBride is a learning and development consultant who started her career in HR but found her passion was in management, learning and development and especially building managers' skills and personal styles. She's also a yoga teacher. Hi Fiona. Hi. Sue Merkin is learning delivery and associate lead here at CIPD. In her time she's worked for Richard Branson and Nita Roddick on government funded projects for disadvantaged youths and champions a coach approach to managing and leading. Welcome Sue. Good morning Nigel. And we have an organisational development change professional with over 20 years experience, most recently in coaching and coach supervision. Clients of her own Fuchsia Blue consultancy have ranged from Scottish Ballet, a Mazda, to Penguin Random House. It's Julie Dryborough. Hello. Good morning. So Julie, shall we just start with the obvious really? Why should we spend valuable work time reflecting at all? I mean, why does reflecting matter? I mean, in your experience, what's the evidence that it actually works? So I think it speaks to um, the point you made in the intro about um, we learn through not just through experience, but we learn through reflecting on the experience. So for me, the power of inviting people to uh, stop, think about what happened, think about what could be done differently, what worked, potentially what didn't work, um, is an essential part of moving people forward. It's an essential part of getting people to try different things. It's an essential part of any change because it's that you know kind of definition of madness, it's doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different outcome. So for me, this is where the reflective part of practice is incredibly important. There is evidence out there that reflective practice does support. And even if you just look at the really basic stuff like Kolb's learning cycles, it's in there. You know, you sort of plan, do, think, check, all of that stuff. So I don't know any other way to do this other than have reflection as a key part of anything that I design. I work quite closely with Fiona, have done for a number of years, and she and I talk about it often. It's like, what's the reflective point here? What's the time that we need to spend with learners? Fiona, I was wondering myself before this podcast if there's a kind of modern malaise of not bothering to make time for reflection. I mean, if you think about politics, a lot of people's actions seem to be dictated by their worldview rather than sort of thinking about their experience and finding out about things. Uh, yeah, and I, I think there's something in this about there's, when there's a lot going on and when we're running to keep up with everything and we also kind of get by by sometimes being on autopilot that then that opportunity for reflection and pausing taking a breath thinking through what's just happened is really hard or we just miss that opportunity mm, absolutely and sue i was also struck by something you said that people might confuse reflecting with just kind of fretting 
<laughs> I think that there's two things here, and I'm, and it ties into exactly what Julian Fiona is saying. I think that art of just stopping and thinking about thinking is something that we need to readdress and re-educate ourselves on and the value of it. Just recently, when we were having um, ACE, our annual conference, I was looking at some research by Kane, who was saying that actually it's not change management we need. We actually deal with change really well, but it's the pace of change. And I think that Fiona's right. We've gone on to autopilot because the pace of how we're living, not just at work, but per se, is just so fast. We potentially feel that we don't have the luxury to actually stop and think about our hearts and our minds connection and what was I feeling when I was doing that or what was I thinking when I was doing that and I think that what's happening is that to try and keep up with pace and what we're doing we're fretting about stuff oh I haven't done that or I didn't quite understand that or oh blimey they're doing it like that and I'm not sure I am and we're fretting in the moment rather than actually just taking a breath taking a step back well in a way that the fretting is is a pretty good indicator isn't it that something hasn't sunk in or that the you learned something which is disturbing or doesn't match with what you were expecting um Julie yeah, I, w- I want to come back to that because because quite often when we talk about reflection, the the language moves into things like feeling, fretting, um, you know, we're we're cogitating or, and in this part of the conversation, I think if we're talking about politics or main discourse or modern malaise, as as, as you're talking about, Nigel, it's often that the the information that's in front of us is we're not getting the opportunity to see the broader picture so we were plugged into social media channels and algorithms that often tell us what we already think um so unless you pause and reflect and think about your bubble the kind of information that you're you're working with you'll just continue you'll continue to think that way you'll continue to like read what you read you know see what you see and i think we have a genuine challenge in our discourse in our mental um, discourse and a social discourse about opening those things up and for me that's part of where reflective practice comes in because you can stop and begin to evaluate whether the information that you're continually getting is the only picture or whether there may be other pictures out there. And one other thing Fiona I just wonder whether some people in the light of what we said I mean especially maybe bosses might feel reflection is for wimps there's something a bit touchy-feely about the word reflection which makes people which puts people off you know maybe they might think it's a luxury for thinkers oh where do I go with that we'd hate to be to be seen as wimps Nigel we want to we want to respond to the question (laughs) so (laughs) like like many things that we do in our world there are people that are fully on board and there are people that struggle to connect with it I think when it's used well, when it's considered, when it's used as a tool within your practice, it's very powerful. There's a real strength in pausing, even if it's for a second before making that next decision or thinking, you know, how to go about that next piece of work. There's a real strength in being honest about your impact and what you're trying to do and if it's working. So I, I think you're right. I think there are, um, that that sometimes is out there, the, the notion that the um, reflection is this kind of, it's sort of wimpy. It speaks to um, a narrative in learning 
about soft skills and things being pink and fluffy and you know there's there's a whole kind of school of thinking and narrative that sits around that type of work and how that's seen in practice in my experience it's actually the very opposite of that it is much much tougher to reflect on your own behavior it is much much tougher to sit and work out what your impact has been like so you're intending to do something but perhaps your impact has been different for me anyway reflective practitioners are amongst the most resilient the most pragmatic the sort of strongest because they have done the work they have sat and being able to reflect on and look at things across the piece. So I always think it's a bit of a cop-out. So if somebody decides to say, well, you know, it's a bit wimpy, it's a bit emotional, I'm like, emotional is quite hard. That's why people don't like to do it. And to say wimpy is a good way of not having to do it. So I love the dodge, (laughs) but I'm not buying it. So, Sue Merkin, I mean, in our everyday lives, we do have an instinct for reflection, don't we? We think, could I have done this better? How could I have handled that situation differently? And we know that uh, in the professions, I mean, doctors and nurses, I mean, it's part of their practice, isn't it, to uh, reflect and report on uh, what's happened. But, I mean, how universal is it in the workplace? I mean, you've got the big picture at CIPD. To what extent would you say reflection is built into our L&D at the moment? Built in? And undertaken, I think, is two different things. So I would say that there is an absolute um, evidence and trend to build in reflection when you're building learning products. But is the work done? That would be the question I would ask. And the reason that I'm saying that is because I read all the feedback forms that come back from learners, regardless of them being through a company product or a um, our open courses and it's really sad how many people say I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do with this or I'm not sure how I'm going to implement this and I sometimes could be screaming at those feedback forms because if there's a person or an organization that has invested in a person to learn actually the responsibility doesn't just lie with the learner that manager should be talking to that person and saying what resonated with you with that learning what's the first thing you need to do actually what was quite difficult for you to grasp it shouldn't just be I've invested in that person they've done the learning they should do the reflection now I'm on to the next learning product or project are you seriously saying that people fill in these forms and then those conversations don't take place Well, I can't say they don't take place, but the very fact that people reflect in the feedback to say, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, rather than I need to speak to my manager next about this, indicates to me that there's still some way to go to support people reflecting in the workplace. That resonates with me. Like when I think about clients that I support, you know, it's it's that there's the real good intention, isn't there? There's that willingness to take something and do something differently but it's about the environment enabling that or allowing for it. Can you think of any specific examples Fiona of people organizations where you've gone in and tried to help but what's been going on here? One example springs to mind and I was doing quite a simple kind of management development program so with a group of new newish managers that were starting out in their careers as managers and Part of the program was we were meeting for half days, like once a month. So we had like a half day every month across six months. And 
I was asking questions like, you know, before you go into one-to-ones or before you start your strategy conversations, you know, what are you doing to prepare? And the constant kind of comeback was, well, we just have to keep, we just take the message. We just, you know, we have to get on with it. We have to just move forward with it. And I'm like, well, okay. So how do you send, like make sense of it for yourselves before you take that out into your space with your teams or the people that are kind of waiting to hear from you? And there was a bit of a, oh, um, yeah, you know, and people kind of stumbled and got a bit stuck with it, which was really interesting. So rather than try and show or bring in some, I don't know, crazy massive reflection model or some, you know, huge extensive reflective practice idea, we talked about what if you had two minutes? What if actually before you had that next conversation, you stopped for two minutes and you just thought, how is this landing with me and what is important for me to discuss next, you know? And so even just that one, two minute of reflective practice is better than none, I would argue. (laughs) And then throughout the programme, we then actually built that up. So in the end, I had them, or they wanted to, um, going out and about for like half an hour walks with each other, reflecting and sharing and problem solving and thinking things through. But it took time to build, you know. Can I just piggyback on that, Nigel? Because Fiona's so right. And I watch a lot of the virtual classrooms that we run at CIPD. And I would say it's almost like a silent game of dare. So we talked about building reflection into the actual learning environment. It's the time when the facilitator will ask that question of, you know, whatever the question is where someone would need to reflect And it just goes into that horrible, deadly tumbleweed moment, almost like who's going to be the first to speak? Almost like, oh, my goodness, who can't cope with the silence enough? And it's and they're all fine if it's about talking about a model or talking about something else. But as soon as it's like, but how will you you know, do this as a manager or what would you need? It, it goes really silent. I can see Julie's really nodding away there as well. Well, I'm, I'm nodding, but, but I'm, I'm also, the, I'm having a response because the, the silence, you, you're, you can't interpret what's happening in that silence. Like quite often that silence is people are going, actually, yes, that question is a good question. So, I mean, I work as a coach. I work with a lot of people we need to get comfortable with that silence. We need to be able to say to people, take three minutes or two minutes, what I do in pretty much everything, management leadership courses, we will ask the question and then I use writing because obviously that's a big part of my own practice. Take a pen, take a piece of paper, take two minutes and just write to yourself for a couple of minutes until you find your words, until you find what the, those, those thoughts. That silence, I think a lot of facilitators get very nervous about that Yeah, no, you're, abso- you're absolutely right. And, and particularly online, because it's weird online. It's the sort of Zoom doom. <laughs> so a lot of what we've done in the last couple of years, and again, Fee and I have worked a number of times in the last few years, is we, we help people fill the silence, but with kind of writing or drawing or whatever. They're, they're doing their own work. They're doing their own reflection. Because otherwise they're filling up the noise for us. And I don't mind what you've learned. I mean, I'm, I'm very hopeful that I've designed it well enough and I've put enough good models in front of you that it's relevant and you're going to take something forward. But I can't predict how you're going to use it particularly or, or who in your team is going to benefit 
um, because you've had a light bulb moment. So I'm like, I, I absolutely hear you, Sue. And I'm like, enjoy the silence. You know, just encourage that that discomfort in the moment because that's where the learning's happening. And, and our facilitators like should revel in that silence. They should they should be like, oh, this is really good. I've asked a good question. But I think I think you you're both agreed you have to bring the group or the individual to that point. And what happens next is is going to be hopefully useful, whatever happens. You hope so. If you design it well enough, then yeah, for sure. There's a lovely quote that um I read a couple of years ago and now I just write everywhere and have in every notebook from Rumi, which says, in silence, there is eloquence. Stop weaving and see how the pattern improves. Mm. And there's so much in that for me. It's everything that Julie just said. You've probably got a decent quote from Julie anyway. But like that's <laughs> that it's that, isn't it? It's that just see what's there. See what comes up. Mm. I mean, we talked a lot about the process of reflection. I just wonder if we can get anything from uh, any of you a bit more on the practical thing of what you do as uh, an L&D professional or just a manager trying to improve uh, the, the sort of uptake of knowledge from training. In a lot of our um, self-directed learning, so, you know, it's in the moment, anytime, any place, anywhere where you want it, it's digital. We tend to use the three what's, so what, so what now what do you just got to really keep it simple i did some writing for one of the essential insights modules and um we had this lovely kind of summary chapter at the end of the module but then reading it through when it was almost done they're like why are we asking questions at the very end why aren't we peppering them through so at the end of every section there was one or two or three very simple you know what do you currently do now? Or what are you thinking about this chapter? Or if you action things that we've talked about in this chapter, how are you doing it? And how does it connect to what you're hearing? So just having those points throughout the module rather than just in one place. And when Julie and I design together, we tend to, and Jules, I know you're coming on this too, but we tend to do like reflection at the very beginning and then we pepper it throughout in different ways. And then we, of course, have an end piece as well. Yeah, so it's pre-questions like at the start of the session. What do you want out of this? You know, what's brought you here today? Even if your manager sent you on the course, you, you've been told you need to. What would be a good use of your time? How can, what can you get out of this? Mm-hmm. So that's like sort of pre-reflective stuff. Do you think we're in danger of underestimating how sort of boosting reflection levels in an organisation might require humility on the part of the trainer or the manager. You know, if they're the official distributor of knowledge, if you like, they run the training, they believe themselves right all the time about how things are taught and how things are done. I um, I think there's an art, Nigel. I think when you first start out in your training and you're facilitating, you're quite n- nervous. Like, you're a bit like, you want everyone to have a really good time, you want everyone to learn, and you hold a lot of the responsibility yourself. I think the more experienced you get, the more able you are to trust your learners and to trust that they will do good things if you've got the right design and you know you've 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 pulled the right stuff in for them. Do I think we underestimate it? No, I don't. I don't think it's underestimated. I, for me, like it was interesting because I I was thinking about this before we came on to this podcast, and part of me goes, it just we just do it, don't we? I mean, when I was you know, when I first started out, it was 
one of the things I was taught as a trainer. Well, Sue's kind of implied that doesn't always work, or at least <laughs> the information is there that they don't know how they're going to use well, it. But the yeah, it's, poor. it's a really tricky one because the other thing is what I find is folk think they're answering an exam question. So a, a good way to get people to tell you what they actually think is say to them, this is not an exam question. Mm. You can't get it right. I need to know what you think, mm. not what you think you should think. And that is often a, a moment with folk where it changes what they'll tell you. Because if you say, what are you going to learn? Many people will, will go, gosh, I've got to come up with a really good answer. And it's like, if you can give some freedom and, and let them go. And the other thing is, genuinely, if 40 folk have not learned what you as the facilitator or trainer wanted them to learn, you have to reflect yeah. on that. You know, you, you you need to take that away and do your own work on <laughs> what's, you know, what, what are you spending your time on? So I think without getting too deep into the warp and the weft, weft of it, I think um, it is important, it is significant. And I, I do think it's it's appreciated within the, the, the learning development and the OD community that, that it's an essential skill it's an essential piece and at the same time um i wondered if there are barriers that we haven't talked about for people to share their reflections i was thinking for example about learners who might think it's not in their own interest to reveal their true fears or their deficiencies mm -hmm. to my point before people can feel performance pressure so you know telling them it's not an exam question there can be trust issues um i think Sometimes we have different spaces for different types of reflection. So the reflection that you do at the end of a course might be different from the reflection that you would do with a coach, might be different from the reflection that you do with your team, might be different from the reflection that you do with uh, at the end of a project or, you know, if, you, if you're doing a sort of post-mortem of something that's not gone terribly well. So barriers are around maybe trust and permission and time. Time's a barrier, for sure. I think... As well, I'd add to that around just the ability to be reflective, a lot of people find tricky, maybe because they haven't had, they don't get the opportunity to, to do it very often, or they're not even sure where to begin or if there's a right way, like going back to the exam point that Julie mentioned. So actually designing in and being quite smart as a, as a facilitator or a trainer, ways that really help people to be reflective without even maybe making it a big deal you know let's all be reflective now for the next half an hour <laughs> could probably like yeah freak people out so there's some lovely kind of techniques and tools that are out there there's the uh liberating structures facilitation techniques and there's one called one two four all so you start out by asking a question and you give everybody a minute to think on their own and maybe you provide them with a post-it note and a pen, you know, or say grab a bit of paper and just brain dump where you're at with X. And then you turn to the person next to you and you work in a two, so you work in a pair. And then two pairs come together after a couple of minutes and share their thinking and then you come back as one group. And it's a really nice way that people don't feel like they have to have all the answers or don't get too stuck in their own head because it's quite swiftly moving along. There's a pace to that thinking time, which often people mm. find really helpful. Sue Merkin, are we in danger of making this too complicated? The more simple you make something, the easier it is to embrace. So if you make something complicated, 
by the very nature of that, people won't do it. So, you know, I'm probably, I'm absolutely reflecting on myself. It has to be simple because as soon as there's any element of I don't get this, I won't do it. So, Julie, simplifying things without dodging the question. Yeah, do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think Sue's absolutely right. I think keeping things incredibly simple benefits everybody. There's a lot of complexity in the world. There's a lot of um, noise out there. And if we are trying to land learning in courses or we're trying to support behavioural change or a mindset shift, those are complicated processes. You know, kind of synaptic changes and all of that kind of stuff are, are complicated in the moment. And so keeping the reflection simple helps. So I think anything, the, the classic one that I use is what went well, what would you do differently? Look at things through an appreciative lens Sometimes make sure you're not always looking through a deficit lens of these are all the terrible things I did. What are the things that we can build on? And then, you know, you've got a learner who feels enabled and responsible for their own development, which is what you want. I do think this comes back to, though, about doing our own work first. So if we're talking, you know, if we're talking to each other you know learning professionals facilitators trainers there's something in this for me about do your own reflective practice in some way shape or form get comfortable with it and different ways of doing it and you'll notice what you find useful and if you're talking about it with other colleagues with other people in your networks you know hearing how other people do it and yeah find that comfortable level with it and then build it in in some way little and often I think there could be a huge impact in that for yourself and for your practice as a professional I just want to build on that as well because Nigel I'm thinking about um we we worked together with a client probably about eight years ago now and we were the the, we were running a leadership program and it, it ran over about four or five months you know there was different modules there was different elements to it And the feedback that we got from the client was, this is just not quite landing. People are going on it. They're having a very nice time, but we're not seeing anything off the back of it particularly. We're not seeing any great change. And one of the things that we did was we we sat with the client and we reflected on what was in there. So we looked end to end at the, the, the design, the models. And what had happened over the years is, different trainers had been involved in it different people had been delivered delivering it and they put in their own little bits and we ended up when you looked at it from end to end there were something like I think maybe 40 separate models I think it was 52 I don't know why 52 sticks in my head I'm sorry but it's like it was a lot it was a lot it was a lot and so we sat with the client and said well would you be able to remember 52 models or 52 bits of information? And and bear in mind, like some of those models were, oh, you've got to remember four C's and three P's and, you know, there's this here and the next thing. So within those 52, you know, there was numbers. Hmm. And and so this point about simplification. And how many did you keep? About a dozen. Yeah, pretty much. We did did a few things really deeply. (laughs) And, 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 they got different results, right? So so there's a big point, you know, in there about, about that stuff. We're coming to the end of our time. Um, Sue, I mean, resources available, CIPD, any just thoughts on how people can get started on reflecting better? 
Yeah, and I think that you don't even have to rely on resources. I think the biggest resource is yourself. Um, and it's just being able to, you know, what did I do well? What would I have done differently? I mean, we've been using that, that question in our one-to-ones with our team members as part of, you know, our one-to-one reviews. And, you know, it's not about what did you do well and what did you do rubbish? <laughs> you know, it's what did you do well? I mean, let's face it, some people do have that propensity to be really self-critical so they can see what they've done potentially not very well, but they really can't see what they've done well. So I think that opening up that that side as well is really important. So what went well? What might have you done differently? And But what did you learn from that? Because let's face it, most of us learn from our absolute biggest kind of um, mistakes, don't we? So yeah, it's. I think don't, don't look external, look internal. I think just building on, building on Sue's point about looking in. So yeah, tapping into your emotions and, you know, how did I feel when it went well? Or if I want to do something differently, why? What did I feel? Like what was coming up for me in that? And so use yourself as a data point as much as other data points that, you, that you'll have around you. And I, want to, I just want to nail home the wimp, the wimp point from earlier and say that if we take Sue's example of we learn from our biggest mistakes often, you have to be a, a strong person to be able to sit with your mistakes and learn from them. So reflective practice is not for wimps. Yeah, well said, Julie. Thank you very much to all three of our guests. That's Julie Jibra, Fiona McBride and Sue Merkin. I should mention we did do a, a past podcast quite recently on learning transfer, which kind of touches on some of these issues. So people might like to listen back uh, uh, that uh, CIPD podcast uh, and there's also last month's eye-opening edition on men's health if you didn't hear that so please subscribe where you get your podcasts uh, so you don't miss out but until next time when we expect to be talking about some of the big issues facing us all at work right now and how HR can respond or help with them meanwhile compliments of the season and it's goodbye from me Nigel Cassidy and all at CIPD. Mm-hmm.